the first couple verses of chapter 12, then we'll drop down and read verses 9 through 13 together. And we're going to cover the whole chapter this morning, just sort of overview a little bit, look at some things, but if you follow with me, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, and then we'll drop down verses 9 through 13. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Verse 9. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation. Devoted in prayer, contributing to the saints, and practicing hospitality. So I, this is for those who are being baptized today. This message is... Going to have bearing for all of us as we walk through this passage. And there's just some things that I want to say to the young people this morning, even for those who aren't being baptized. There's some exhortations that I would like to give and some encouragement that I would like to give. And if, you know, looking back and this point in your life and looking backwards, things that I wish I would have known when I was younger walking through life. And so hopefully that is what, what will this is just some principles for your life. But it's interesting because I'm going to bring you to chapter 12. But if you just watch with me as we walk through this, this is Paul as he writes to the church in Rome. And he is instructing them in regards to the gospel. So first he's going to deal with sin, the righteousness of God revealed in condemnation. And he's going to deal with the condemnation of the heathen world. Then he's going to deal with the condemnation of the moral man, then the condemnation of the religious man, and then the conclusion, the whole world stands condemned before God. In other words, we're all in need of God's righteousness. Then comes the next section, in chapter 3, verse 21, where he deals with the righteousness of God revealed in justification. This is our salvation. That then leads him to sanctification. The righteousness of God revealed in sanctification, and then sovereignty, God's righteousness Revealed in his sovereign choice as he deals with the issue of those he chose and those he has not. And then that moves Paul to deal with the issue of service, the righteousness of God revealed in transformed living. And this is where I'd like to focus our time this morning in chapter 12. And really it runs from 12.1 to chapter 15, but we're only going to look at chapter 12. And there's just some thoughts that I want to pull out of this chapter and look at together this morning as we walk through here. But if we could introduce the thought, it's this. Right relationship means right living. Our relationship to God is everything. It is the most important relationship in our life. And for those who are being baptized today, this is what they are professing. They are affirming that they have placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. They are affirming their commitment to Him, that they have surrendered their life to Him. And they are affirming, if you will, their love for Him and being obedient to His commands. And in that is being baptized, that is what God has commanded us to do. 
And so they are reflecting their devotion and the right relationship with them. But this then flows into the rest of our life. In other words, right relationship with God involves right relationship with everybody else around us. Not just our family, not just the church, although that's very included here, but also with the rest of the world. How are we supposed to respond to unbelievers as a believer? And as a result of our relationship with God, we have obligations to other people around us and how we're supposed to live. So in 1 John, John says this, if you say that you love God and you hate your brother, he says you're a liar. In other words, you can't say that you love God and then you don't treat others the way you're supposed to treat them or live in light of the way that God wants you to live in light of your relationship to other people. You cannot say you love God and then not honor that role that you have in relationship to other people because he says you're a liar then if you say that. And it's interesting because Paul's going to deal with several relationships here. The first starting in chapter 12, verse 3, he's going to deal with our relationship within the context of the church. And he's going to talk about spiritual gifts and what we're supposed to do with those. In verse 9, he is going to weave, starting in verse 9, our relationship to the church and our relationship to the world. Verse 13, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Verse 14, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. In other words, those who seek to make our life a miserable place and a miserable existence, we're not supposed to ask for God to curse them, we're supposed to ask God to bless them. And so he's going to walk through this and talk about, okay, if you say that you have a relationship with God, then this is how your relationship should be with everybody else around you. Because if it's not, then are we proven to be liars by the things that we say about our relationship with the Lord? Now, Paul through this letter has shown that the gospel has the power to transfer us from the realm of unrighteousness and sin and death to the realm of righteousness and life. But here's the thing that he brings to the forefront in this passage as he walks from chapter 12 following is the fact that even though we have been delivered out of this realm of unrighteousness and out of sin and we have experienced this gracious gift of God of salvation does not remove from us a responsibility. And for you young brothers and sisters, this is what I want to exhort to you. You have a responsibility. You have a responsibility to live out the righteousness that God has graciously blessed you with. In other words, sometimes there's this thought of that, well, I, I'm saved now and I know I'm going to heaven, so now I'm free to do whatever I want until it's time for me to go. No. No. That's cheap grace. And you'll never hear that preached here. And you'll never hear that encouraged here. God is working to transform us into the image of His Son, according to Romans 8, 29. And we are to partake in this process of transformation. We are involved in this. In other words, there is supposed to be a metamorphosis that happens in our life. So this is what's amazing about Paul coming into chapter 12, as he is talking about the gospel through this letter to the church of Rome. But he doesn't stop just merely with the aspects of what we're supposed to believe. He moves right into what we're supposed to do in our life, how we're supposed to behave. In other words, his presentation of the gospel would be incomplete if he didn't talk about these things. Now this is important for us to understand this. Because here's the thought coming into chapter 12. 
When Paul talks about how we're supposed to live our life in light of the gospel, it isn't a mere consequence of the gospel. It's a part of the gospel. Why? Because he says in chapter 1, verse 5, that he proclaims the gospel to bring about the obedience of the faith. So here's something for the rest of us to think about. We're concerned with fighting against a prosperity gospel. We're concerned about fighting against a social gospel. We're against fighting against easy believism. But here's something I want to ask you. Are you as zealous about defending the life of service? So we're always concerned about people who say they accept Christ as their Lord and Savior, and then we want to make sure that there's fruit in their life, but what about our life? Are we blessing those who persecute us, or are we cursing them? Notice verse 12. Are we rejoicing in hope? Are we patient in tribulation? Are we devoted to prayer, or are we not? You see what I'm saying? All of these things are vital for us. We're supposed to be concerned with preserving sound doctrine, but we're also supposed to be as equally zealous for preserving a pure, holy life. So Paul says, I'm going to tell you about the other, but I must tell you about this as well. It's just as important. So notice with me as we walk through this, and I'm just going to highlight some things about the Christian life. And this, again, is for the young people who are being baptized today, but then again, it is for all of us. And if there are some things that I could say as I look back on my life that I would like for you to know at a young stage in your Christian life and in your life, these are things that I would say are good for you to know. So follow with me, if you will, through chapter 12, verses 1 through 21. The Christian life exhibited in sacrificial service. The Christian life should be one of consecration. And this is our first two verses. If you notice with me, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. The first thing I would say to those who are being baptized today, be a living sacrifice for God. Be a living sacrifice for God. Or if I could put it another way, let your life be a worship gift to God. And when you accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior, this is what you did. It wasn't just merely receiving him as Jesus, Savior of the world, or Christ, the anointed one, but you received him as Lord, in other words, master of your life. Surrender your life up to him as a living sacrifice. Yield it to him to do whatever he wants with your life. I know that's tough when you're young, right? Because you think, I've got my whole life ahead of me and I want to give it all over to the Lord. But that's what he's asking for. That's what he's asking for. And it really is no less that we should offer to him because in light of the mercies, verse, 12, verse 1 of chapter 12, in light of the mercies that we've experienced of God, the pity, the compassion, the graciousness that he has manifested to us, and the fact that he saved us and draws us out of this life of sin and death, and he has redeemed us, we owe him nothing less than our life. So in light of all that God has done, Paul says, realize that offering yourself to God as a living sacrifice is indeed a reasonable act of worship. 
And I would like to plant this thought in your head because he, he deals with the issue of this is an act of worship, verse 1 of chapter 12. We need to understand that he is talking about the entirety of the Christian life. Your whole life is an act of worship. Our whole life is an act of worship. Everything we do is an act of worship to God. Everything that we do in life is supposed to ascribe worth to God. In other words, ascribing worth to God isn't giving something to God. It's acknowledging something about God. It is affirming His character. It is affirming who He is and what He has done in our life. In other words, when God and the world look at our life every day and every moment of every week, there should be an act of worship manifested to God. There should be this acknowledgement of God's work in our life and the relationship that we have with Him. Now stop, young people, and think about this last week of your life. When you walked through this last week of your life and interacted with other people, whether it was at work or at school or in the marketplace, wherever it was, did they see in your life that you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? Did they see a life that worshipped God or did they see a life that worshipped the world? next exhortation I would say is this, verse 2 of chapter 12, be a nonconformist. Be a nonconformist. Notice chapter 12, verse 2 in your text. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may approve what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. I love this thought, be a nonconformist. I don't like boxes, never liked them, still don't like them. The issue is that he's going to deal with how we're not supposed to be conformed in this passage as he talks about this. And the term that Paul uses is interesting to me. And it, originally it meant this, to form oneself after another or be formed like. And hence it came to be used a fashioning something by using a shaped container to form a mold. So my mom, okay, the best way I can explain it is my mom used to make this, this chocolate cake, and it was a chocolate fudge cake, right? And so she had this pan, and it was a mold, and it had a hole in the middle. But she put the, the, the batter and everything inside this pan, and then she would bake it. And then when she would flip it over and take the pan off, it had this nice decorative design, and she would cut it, and then would have this oozing chocolate pudding on the inside. And for us chocolate lovers, it was amazing, right? But that, that's the idea of this word here. It is this mold. It is that which shapes you. So then it was taken further, and it carries the idea of forming or molding one's behavior in accordance with a particular pattern or set of standards. That pattern and set of standards here, Paul says, is the world. So if I can render verse 2, it's like this. Don't let the fallen, ever-shifting world that surrounds you squeeze you into its own mold. Be a nonconformist. Do not let the world squeeze you into its mold. And here's the thing that's interesting, and be careful about this, because sometimes you want to rebel about things that you see, injustices and things in the world. Oftentimes, the things that we fight against are things that we end up becoming. So just be cautious as you are interacting with the world, and you are confronting the world, don't be squeezed into its mold. And this is something that we allow ourselves to do. 
I can look back at my life and I used to think that there was a period of my life where I was very rebellious against certain things in the world, injustice and so on. But then I ended up realizing that I was becoming the very things that I hated. And I realized that as much as I thought I was fighting against the mold of the world, I was becoming just like the world. And then I had to step back and say, well, then how different am I from everyone else around me? And the answer is not much. But yet when I make this pro proclamation that I am a follower of Jesus Christ, I am declaring that there is something radically different about my life from everything else that happens around me. But then I looked at my life and it, and it reflected the fact that there's nothing different in me. Now, I just say be careful because I don't want you to be a rebel without a clue. But, you know, some things that we find ourselves fighting against as the church and as believers, we find we're not supposed to. Give you an example. Romans chapter 13. Every person, verse 1, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, Paul goes on to talk about the fact that we are supposed to have a certain type of behavior within society. We're supposed to do certain things like pay our taxes and all of these things. So I'll just tell you, don't be a rebel without a clue, but be a rebel. Know what you're fighting against. And let the scriptures define what you're supposed to fighting against. And you will find, being a nonconformist, that there are going to be times when you're standing up and you look around and you realize you're the only one who's standing and everyone else is sitting. You will find yourself standing up, young people, defending and fighting for things that you know are biblically true and true of God, and you will look around and find that you are the only one standing and fighting against those things. But that's what we must do to be nonconformists. So basically what Paul is requiring here is a total transformation in our worldview. We're no longer to look at life in terms of this world, but we are to look at life in terms of the new realm in which we belong, the realm that is ruled by righteousness, life, and the Holy Spirit. So let me give you an example. The world, the existing generation, is essentially materialistic. In other words, it's governed by the body, not the spirit. The body rules, not the spirit rule. So here are the questions, and these are the issues that, that can form the life around us. What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we put on? These are the all-pervading, all-aminating aspirations that take place around us. This is what life is about. And I'm just going to say this to you, all right? And, and I'm not contradicting your parents. I guarantee you I'm not. But here's the problem, young people, is that sometimes when we look at life, we think it's about making a living, it's not about making a living. Life is about building a life of righteousness. Sometimes when you look at your life as a young person, you think that all I have to look forward to is what, is am, I, what am I going to do for a living? That's not what life is about. What life is about is your relationship with Jesus Christ. All that other stuff is determined by that relationship to Christ. So, just hear me, don't walk out saying, well, Pastor C said I'm not supposed to get a job. That's not what I'm saying. It's not what I'm saying. But here's the thing. As males, I know this. As a man, this is how we define ourselves. You introduce yourself to another man, what do we do? We say, this is who I am. This is what I do. I'm Steve. I'm a pastor. Or I, I drive for the railroad. Or this is what I do for a living, right? I'm in sales. I'm in this. I'm in that. We introduce ourselves and define ourselves by our occupation. We define ourselves by where we live and the house we live in. We define ourselves by the cars we drive. We define ourselves by the clothes we wear. We define ourselves by the food that we eat. And we say to the world, this is who I am. But that's not who you are. 
Do you hear me, young folks? That is not who you are. You are a child of God. You are a follower of Jesus Christ. All that other stuff, peripheral. Because here's the thing. If you allow yourself to be defined by those other things rather than by your relationship with Christ, what happens when all those other things are taken away? Then what do you have? You have nothing. Give an example. One brother in the church years ago, he left high school, graduated, and he went to work for this great company, thriving company, worked his way up through the company, thought, I'm going to retire from this company. Everything's great. I'm moving along. I live in a great neighborhood. I have a nice house. I have the car I want, clothes I want to wear, food on the table. And here his kids are going off to college, and so now he's going to have to pay for college. And here he's thinking, I've got everything set in place. And then all of a sudden, the company goes belly up, no more job. So now what? All of a sudden he realized, that's not my life. I am a Christian, first and foremost. That other stuff is secondary. Those things will change. Your relationship with Christ will never change. So I had a young brother who came to me and he says, you know, Steve, I don't know what I'm supposed to do in my life. And, and he was thinking about going to Christian college. And I said, look, man, just go to college. I said, go study the Bible, man. Learn theology because you're always going to be a believer. Then pray and ask God to guide you into what he wants you to do. Because everything else is just the mission field. So don't fall into the world's definition of things. Understand that the world... Men everywhere, are they judge after the flesh. They walk after the flesh. They live after the flesh. They're just early, non-conformists. This isn't how we live. Non-conformists, we live by the Spirit. The Spirit is the dominating power. Intellect governs the body. Conscience governs the intellect. Moral uprightness governs the conscience. We're spiritual beings. This is what defines us. So the things of the Spirit are everything to us. We are to walk after the Spirit, live by the Spirit. And if you want to see a great handling of this truth, read Romans chapter 7 and 8. The next thing is I would exhort you to be transformed. Chapter 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed by this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, I'm just going to give you this thought. Let God remold your minds from within. This is the word, the Greek word, where we get our English word metamorphosis from. In other words, the world comes at you from the outside. The world comes from the outside and tries to squeeze you into its mold. And, and the intent is that that outside pressure will change the inside. Paul says, but what really needs to happen is a total transformation from within and have it manifest itself outwardly. And if you walk through this passage, chapter 12, you'll see all the different ways in which we're supposed to be renewed in our mind. And it's obvious. It's obvious. So I'm not even going to elaborate on that for you, but we're going to elaborate on some things here. Notice that the Christian life should be one of humility, verses 3 through 8. All right, so Paul's going to deal with the issue of spiritual gifts. This is the first thing he's going to deal with, and starting in verse 3. But here's my exhortation to you. Have a clear view of who you are. Have a clear view of who you are. The world's going to try to define you. People in the church are going to try to define you. Let God define you. 
I mean, he already has when you think about it, right? He already has. We know Psalm 139. He wove us together in our mother's womb, right? So he formed us and he gave us all the talents and all the abilities and everything. He made us who we are. He did the same thing spiritually in us. He made you who you are. Know who you are. And when you know who you are, then you're not going to be squeezed into someone else's mold. And you're not going to fit into someone else's box. You're going to be exactly who God wants you to be. This is what drives me nuts when other people try to tell my kids who they are. Or when they say to my kids, hey, you know, you're just like so-and-so. No, they're not. They are themselves. And that is who they're supposed to be. Each one unique. Each one different. Each one has a contribution. Each one has unique gifts. Each one needs to manifest those gifts for the glory of God. My job as a parent is to release them. To release them to be all that God has designed them to be. And if you ask my kids, what is the exhortation I've always given them and will always give them? I want you to be everything that God has made you to be. Nothing less. And I will expect nothing less from you. And I say to them, the only reason why I expect these things from you is because I know God has placed them in you. Therefore, this is why I want this for you. But this should be for all of us. And we find ourselves comparing ourselves with other people, whether it's spiritual gifts, whether talents or abilities. Man, I wish I could sing. I wish I could play the guitar. I'd be doing it all the time. And isn't it funny? Those who really wish could and, and wanted to do it all the time don't have that ability. But there are things that I wish I could do, but I realize I'm not going to be able to do them. So I enjoy when others come and bring those abilities and they use them for God's glory and for our benefit. And so as he talks about the issue of our spiritual gifts, know who you are, know what you have, know how God has made you to be, and then come and display that. Now this is interesting. Notice verse 3. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each one a measure of faith. Now there's a play in words here, so I'm going to do this for you. The first one is there, he says, I want you not to think more highly than you ought to think. So this is the Greek word that he uses here. The first part is huper, it is over, and then phronane. In other words, don't overthink yourself. Sometimes we do that, we overthink ourselves. We think more of ourselves than we ought to think. We think of our capabilities more than what they are. Paul says, just have a clear view of just how God has made you to be. I can do this, but I cannot do this. Know that. But at the same time, acknowledge the things that you can do, all right? That's not arrogance, to acknowledge what God has instilled in you. But then when you get prideful about it and you start strutting around, now you got a problem, right? Now you got a problem. And then he adds on this thought, don't think beyond what you ought to think. So don't overthink yourself and don't think beyond what you're supposed to think. But you're supposed to have a clear view of who you are nonetheless. So then the second part of the verse goes like this, but I want you to think. And I want you to think with sound judgment. Now this is intriguing to me, verse 3. This word for sound judgment, it means to be right in the mind. Stop and think about this for a moment. Sophranein, it means to be right in the mind. In other words, what Paul is saying here is that self-conceit is a form of insanity. It's a powerful statement. 
You think more of yourself. You have self-conceit. You're insane. You've lost your mind. You're out of your head. You're a nut job. So if I could render the verse, it's this way. Don't cherish exaggerated ideas about yourself or your importance. Some of us walk around thinking we're far more important than we really are. <laughs> but try to have a sane estimate of your capabilities by the light of the faith that God has given to each one of you. Have a clear view of yourself. Know who you are. Don't be forced into someone else's mold. Don't let someone else make you something that God has not made you. But be all that God has created you to be. But definitely, definitely, don't think of yourself more than what you really are. Next, have a clear view of the church, verses 4 through 5, and this quickly. Here's verse 4. We have many members in one body, and these members have different functions, right? So we're all important to the body. I'm going to say that young people, get involved in church. You have a gift, use it. We're all necessary and we're all needed for us to get where we need to go. And verse 5 says this, In the same way, though we are many, we are all one body in union with Christ, and we are all joined to each other as different parts of the one body. So there is diversity, there is unity. We each are belong to this body of Christ, and we're all necessary to it. And then verses 6 to 8, then he's going to say, Have a clear view of your responsibility. We have different gifts, use them. I'm just going to say, listen to me. You have talents, use those talents. You have spiritual gifts, use those gifts. There's nothing more shameful before God is to be given a talent and a gift and then you sit on it and don't do anything with it. You deprive the rest of us from the edification that can come from those things and you deprive God of the glory that He should receive from those things. Amen? So I realize, look, you're afraid to get up front and saying, get over it. Get over it. Next is love. And we're going to end on this section. The Christian life should be one of love. Verses 9 through 21. Just some thoughts coming out of this. First, love is to be without hypocrisy. Verse 9. And this is really what it is. Love unhypocritical. This is all it is. Love unhypocritical. A poor what is evil, cling to one is good. So there is this issue of morality that's connected with love. But if I can put verse 9 this way, let us have no imitation of Christian love. In other words, our love should be sincere and genuine. So this is, if you will, the umbrella under which everything else that flows from here falls. Everything is under this statement, love without hypocrisy, love sincere. Love genuine. So he's going to talk about what that means then. It is a moral love. It's about purity. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Verse 10, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. So all of these things are going to fall under this one umbrella. All right. So I leave that for you to ponder on. So love is brother love. We're supposed to love his family. We're supposed to love his family. If we are a part of the church, then we are God's family. We are brothers and sisters. And it isn't say love like a brother, love brother love. In other words, you are family. Act like it. There should be a warm affection between us as brothers and sisters in Christ. Because we all share the same Father. Love involves humility. So I'm going to look at verse 16 in light of this. Verse 16 says this. 
Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Be of the same mind. Live in harmony with each other, as one rendering of it. Do not be haughty. Do not think high-minded things, but associate with the lowly. And just stop and think about this. Do not be high-minded, but associate with the lowly. There are a lot of social outcasts that I'm sure that, that, that there are those within the body of Christ who should be willing to reach out to them and do not. I must say to you young people, be willing to reach out to the outcasts. Be willing to reach out to those who are lowly, those who need pity and compassion because God has shown us pity and compassion. If I could render it this way, verse 16, have the same concern for everyone. Don't become snobbish, but take a real interest in lowly people. Do not become set in your own opinions. We become so opinionated about things that our opinions become law and almost equal to the Word of God even in our lives and how we live according to our opinions. But those opinions keep us from reaching into the lives of other people that we should be reaching into. If we have been shown compassion and pity by our God, the mercies, verse 1 of chapter 12, then should we not then turn around and show compassion and pity to those who are in sorrowful situations? And the answer is yes. The worst thing I saw young people in church when I was younger, doing youth ministry, we used to sit in the back couple of rows, the young people did, and so I sat back there because I was a youth leader, and so we were sitting in the back, and there was a, a couple of chairs back behind our rows, and in came this elderly man and his daughter, and it's interesting because as we sat there, they came in during worship time, we're singing the songs, and all of a sudden I can hear the kids talking, and they're making comments about the, the, the elderly man and the, the young woman behind us. And they're talking about how he smells and all of that. And, and you could smell it. I mean, you could tell that he smokes cigarettes and pretty heavily because you just could smell the odor on him. So they're going on and on and talking about all this stuff, right? And all of a sudden they're distracted. They're not even worshiping God. They're just talking about how this guy smells and how they don't want to be around him and how this is offensive and all of this stuff. And the shame of it is, is that this woman brought her father to church for the very first time. And do you know that nobody... And I include myself in this, nobody went over to talk to him or to welcome him or to make him feel like he is welcome there and that he can find what he needs there in love and compassion and pity. All anyone could do afterwards was talk about how offensive he was to them. Have the same concern for everybody. Do not become snobbish, but take a real interest in lowly people. Don't become set in your own opinions. Finally, love involves those outside and inside the church. Verse 13, contributing to the needs of the saints, pursuing hospitality. Now, he's going to weave through these verses, relationship to those in the church and those outside of the church. Literally, hospitality is to be a lover of strangers. A lover of strangers. This is one of the requirements of an elder. He should be hospitable. In other words, his home should be open to strangers. 
The interesting thing is that he talks about pursuing, and this is how I would translate it, NASB has practicing, and that's really unfortunate because it is the same word that's used in verse 14 as he talks about the enemies that persecute us. It's the same word. In other words, with the same zeal that our enemies seek to persecute us, we're supposed to be just as zealous in pursuing hospitality and love of strangers and opening up our homes to other people. We're supposed to be zealous for this. So if I could do verse 13 this way, G&T, the Good News Translation, does this. Share your belongings with needy fellow Christians and open your homes to strangers. It's also been rendered this way, verse 13, give freely to fellow Christians in need, never grudging meal or bed for those in need of them. I always think about this verse. I think about a neighbor that we had when I was a kid in La Mirada. He went through Vietnam War, lost both his legs. Got caught up in alcoholism and all of this stuff, right? So he got off alcohol and everything. And he and his wife, they would reach out to these vets and these men who were living on the streets. And they would bring them into their home and try to help them get on their feet. Now, the thing that was amazing about them is that, one, they weren't believers. So that was staggering as it was. But they would bring these men into their home and they wouldn't then just merely put them on the couch bed or stick them in a cot in the garage. They would actually bring them into their home and have them sleep in their own bed, the best bed in the house, the best room in the house. And even sometimes those men would soil the beds so badly that it would seep through onto the floor and he and his wife would clean up the mess. That's an unbeliever. That's someone who's never experienced the compassion and pity of God. We as believers should be leading in this. Never turn away someone from your home. I used to, when we first moved here, I thought, you know, I'm going to get a plaque. And I went and found a guy who made signs. And I was going to have this plaque put over our door. Our heart and home is always open. And I went, we designed the plaque and everything, and then I stopped and I said, you know what, I'm tired of people hanging plaques everywhere and don't live up to them. I said, you know what, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to hang a plaque over my door, I'm just going to live this truth out. Our heart and home are always open. This is the life of the believer. We should be just as zealous for this kind of life as we are for sound doctrine. But unfortunately, we're not. Do you know that hospices and hospitals and schools all started from the church? All universities now that have gone way liberal, but all these universities and everything, they all started during the Reformation by the church. The church has always led the way in reaching out to the world and to those in need. They've always been in the forefront. So here's the question. How's this going in our lives? How open is our home? How open is our life? Are we sharing our belongings with other fellow Christians even, let alone with total strangers? Or do we put limitations on what God can use? The last two chapters deal with the issue of Christian life and submissiveness to the state and sensitivity to the conscience and self-denial. These are just some things that I want to exhort you young brothers in and sisters in. Those who are going to be baptized today, your relationship with Jesus Christ is everything. And it defines everything in your life. May it do so from here on out as you walk through this next week and month and year. May those who 
live life around you and come in contact with you. May they see that you have surrendered your life as a living sacrifice to God, that you are a nonconformist in the best sense of the word, and that you are being transformed from within by God, and that you manifest the kind of love that God wants you to manifest, a sincere, genuine love, not just for the church, but for unbelievers as well. Because God expects nothing less from us. Dad, would you close in a word of prayer?